Today, I'm really happy to have feature motion picture director, producer, writer, and fine art curator Kelsey Edwards on Art World, the White Hot Magazine of Contemporary Art podcast. Kelsey recently directed the extraordinary, galvanizing, and highly divulging documentary feature motion picture, The Art of Making It, which has been critically hailed by the press and members of the art world alike. Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Jerry Saltz called it one of the most majestic and unexpected films about the secret life of art. After winning the Festival Favorites Audience Award from the South by Southwest Film Festival, The Art of Making It premieres tonight, June the 29th, at the IFC Center in New York City. In addition to her work as an award-winning filmmaker, Kelsey Edwards is also a published author and contemporary curator of dozens of fine art exhibitions. Kelsey received an MFA from the renowned Stanford University in documentary film and earned a bachelor's degree in American Studies from the University of Texas at Austin with a minor in French and Anthropology. Her short documentaries have screened at South by Southwest, the American Film Institute Documentary Festival, the Discovery Channel Film Festival, and True False, among others. Her producer credits include Wonder Women, the untold story of American superheroines, which was broadcast on PBS Independent Lens, and Words of Witness, which premiered at the Berlin Film Festival and was broadcast on Al Jazeera America. Kelsey has lectured at such notable institutions as Pratt Institute, Barnard College, the New School for Social Research, and the New York University Tisch School of the Arts. She currently runs and curates Iron Gate East, an exhibition series based in the New York Hamptons, which was inspired by her pioneering Austin, Texas art gallery, Iron Gate Studios. She works and lives with her husband and three young children in the village of Quag on Long Island in New York. Kelsey, welcome to the show. Let's talk a little bit about your previous short films, the people featured in them, and the overlap of those films with your current documentary feature, The Art of Making It. Your shorts and this documentary feature are not just a collection of interviews about the subjects at hand, but also a revelation of real lives often significantly affected by both the operation of dominant and alternative art worlds. What is it about fine artworks, their creation, and artists' lives that compel you to explore their roots, trajectory, and outcome, and how do the subjects affect your approach in the creation of those films? Uh, Well, first, thank you so much for having me on the show. It's exciting to be speaking with you and to be speaking about this film, which I'm so proud of making it. In terms of how my short films have influenced this, there's a great quote, and I believe it was from Cinema Texas uh, that talked about short films as being the laboratory of cinema. As long as I've been making films, I've been in some form or fashion having conversations about the creative process. And my documentary is almost always a feature, uh, artists and creative types. Uh, Some of the short films you mentioned earlier, Well, The Ghost of Material is a portrait of an artist working uh, from his cell at San Quentin State Prison on death row. Um, My thesis film was about the history of camouflage. Uh, I looked at it through many different lenses, one of which was the art art historical lens and how it's been uh, used by different artists and uh, I flew out to New York and interviewed Sophie Matisse, who was making camouflage paintings as a way of dealing with her own kind of charged identity as a painter with the last name like Matisse. <laughs> yeah. 
You'd have and that to. lineage, yeah, exactly. She was the great granddaughter of Henri Matisse and the really? stepbrother of Marcel Duchamp. Wow. And is a very talented artist in her own right. So it's one of those kind of birthrights that is kind of a curse and a blessing. You know, what is it about it that compels me? You know, I've, I've spoken about this in, in, in previous interviews. I'll just kind of briefly mention, you know, my father was a museum curator and I grew up in uh, a contemporary art curator. So I grew up surrounded by contemporary artists that he had lifelong friendships with and whose careers he um, celebrated and nurtured writing about their work over time and developing a close personal relationship with these, this kind of generation of artists that became like aunts and uncles and you know, staying up night and hanging out around the kind of kitchen table to listen to them talk about, you know, about their work and, and talk about their work as work, as labor, as uh, intellectual curiosity, as process. You know, it was never about celebrity. It was never about career. It was never about getting into a certain collection. It was really about ideas. And so, you know, I, I didn't have a connection to an institution like, like he did, but I had a ton of friends who were working artists. So I opened a sort of artist-driven kind of uh, art space in East Austin 20 years ago with a couple of friends and we were showing emerging artists and uh, trying to kind of help them get their work out there and I sort of found myself working with work that I thought of as a, as a repository of ideas and a way to as start conversations in a very commercial landscape which is the art market. It just made sense to me after kind of experiencing all sides of this ecosystem to try to uh, present a version of an artist's journey, what that might look like and feel like today as the stakes have become so much higher. And those were some of the things we explore in the film. Mm -hmm. um, stakes being things like the cost, uh, well, first of all, the almost prerequisite of having a master's degree in fine art to get into a quote, good gallery from a, quote, good school, the cost of that education, the cost of moving to most expensive cities in the country. How do they, how do these artists, how are they able to maintain a, a practice? And the biggest question we're really asking is, you know, as a culture, what are we, you know, what are we sacrificing if we set up a system that has created conditions where only those who already have a certain amount of socioeconomic privilege are able to afford to be artists in the first place? Who are your most significant influences as a director and producer? Is it the documentary greats like Albert Maisel's and Barbara Koppel or other media makers altogether like certain novelists, philosophers, or visual artists? Yeah, there's, gosh, there's so many. I was, I really like, you know, I, I, I mean, some of the greats, you know, Errol Morris, mm -hmm. you know, Werner mm -hmm. Herzog, Agnes Varda, like all the, you know, <laughs> um, I'm a film school geek. I really like people that are, you know, taking some risks in their storytelling. I wasn't particularly interested. I feel like I've been seeing the same kind of documentary about the art world for a while now. Mm -hmm. uh, all those stories seem very kind of preoccupied with um, celebrity artists, really about money, celebrity, and or it's about um, scandal, uh, you know, kind of true crime, you know, films about fraudulent artwork or height. Yeah, just all, all that. And so I really wanted to show people that you can make an entertaining, exciting, um, compelling film about the art world without playing to the lowest common denominator. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and then I also, I wanted to present this as a sort of tapestry film. I'm, I'm also a little burnt out on a, a, this, these kind of formulaic docs that, you know, sort of follow one character, you know, it's one person's story and it's right. kind of making 
micro macro and there's right. a place for that but that's not all the filmmakers I just mentioned don't make films like that. They're not right. the ones I enjoy the most. Right. Those films can be done beautifully by those filmmakers that make those kinds of films. But I really wanted to make something that's for a more contemporary audience and a savvier audience. And I think young people today are consuming information in so many different formats. And people, have, I think people are pretty media savvy and media literate. And I think they get the point pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. So this is a fast film there's a lot of information presented it's dense yeah a lot of connections being made it's not going to be for everybody i'm fine with that yeah that's cool <laughs> well it's playing in a very special place for um an audience that's kind of braced for it and hopefully when it goes wider the obviously i think that that audience will grow tell me a little bit about the nuts and bolts of making a film like this maybe you can go over a few of the many steps in your creative process that led up to the culmination of the art of making it. What's interesting with documentary is you really, you know, there's the film you set out to make and then the film you end up making while you set out to make that original film and they will never be the same film, not even, not even close because, you know, the world is, uh, you know, unpredictable. Um, your subjects are unpredictable. That said, it's still scripted to a certain degree. So in terms of the film, we were hoping to the story we were hoping to tell i have a uh, a dear friend who is launching something called the mfa fair and it was going to be an art fair for uh, graduate programs as opposed to with with each graduate school having a booth as opposed to for example a gallery james solomon a brilliant curator mm -hmm. as he set out with this new venture i told him i would love to film him film you know him the kind of behind the scenes of an art fair coming together because most people haven't seen that and it's amazing. And I referred to it as a kind of city built in a day, but I wanted this to be a kind of backdoor way into getting into this contemporary landscape of young, emerging, working artists coming out of these programs I was describing, trying to enter the market, navigate all these social pressures, and meanwhile, make meaningful work and retain their voice and identity and, and, and somehow make it, you know, make it all happen, make it all work. And what's funny is we actually, James is actually featured in that opening scene with the uh, putting together the show he curated of uh, Sebastian Lazarus as well, beginning at the end. Um, but as we had begun filming, the project, his his project or his initiative was was shelved somewhat indefinitely, kind of remains to be seen if it'll, mm -hmm. it'll, it'll actually happen. The MFA fair didn't come to fruition, but we had already begun the rest of it. And fortunately, we realized pretty early on that it wasn't so much about that fair itself. It was about this cast of artists. Mm -hmm. And we had certain rules in place in terms of wanting to show range, uh, geographical range, diversity of, of every kind in the cast, as well as in the work, work they were making and what that work was about. What's interesting is I, I still really was missing this idea of showing that sort of city built in a day and as a curator i had participated in spring break art fair the year before and knew amber and andrew and i thought these guys if, if they'll let us go behind the scenes <laughs> there this would be a great way of, of giving that audience that same experience in a way the film the film you see is still the film we set out to make but there were some kind of key ingredients that shifted but of course the biggest shift really was that there was a global pandemic while we were filming it you are the daughter of a fine art curator your father is it safe to say that your father had a big influence on your personal and later professional interest in the arts and specifically an appreciation for art and artists? What was it like being raised by him and the culture that he, I imagine, brought to your family? What was that like? I, I would say, I mean, I had a 
magical childhood. My memories of it are, are very special. And I think, you know, definitely enriched by the exposure I got from my parents to the, um, the world of art and artists and, and also books. My mother was a avid reader and taught us all to love kind of self-education. They instilled in us a kind of curiosity. So I was definitely compelled to travel and to storytell from a young age. But I think one of the important lessons uh, for me as a filmmaker was to, to trust my voice. Film is very, very collaborative. It, I mean, it goes without saying, but it's, it, it bears mentioning and repeating, you know, editor, co-editor, composer, I mean, you're, you know, animator, filling these positions, interviewing many, many different people from each of these categories. And a lot of the director's responsibilities is team building. And then in the process and the creative process, you're asking about the day-to-day is trusting your team and and trying to create conditions where they can do their best work and and staying focused on why you brought them in and what you're hoping to get from them uh, for the project. In all of that, there are times where there are lots of people, there's lots of weigh-in, you know, you're hearing it from, you know, producers, people, stakeholders, people who are nervous about how certain people in the art world that they've given you access to are going to react when they see themselves portrayed. And you have to be willing to be loud and especially as a first-time female film director you have to be willing to sort of put your foot down and insist insist on being trusted it's your vision and at the end of the day for better for worse you know (laughs) it's your name is going to be on this film so you have to it's not worth doing unless you're willing to stand up for yourself in those ways and take all those risks and in the end own it and make sure you've made the film you set out to make For fundamentally creative people who explore numerous media, there's often no real distinction between the choices of one art form over another. What is the connection between your work as a now seasoned contemporary art curator and as a feature-length documentary filmmaker? Let's see, the connection between curation and directing. Really exciting thing about directing. I don't know, I keep, keep, you know, I'm starting a professorship in the fall. I'm teaching at Hofstra University. I'll be teaching a film, I mean, a television directing and producing. And, um, but I, I really think that everything feeds your creative process. So, you know, in my instance, you know, my other passion happens to be curation and thinking about art and writing about art. And so, you know, in my experience, I think how that is informed my process is it, it teaches me to think, think visually in terms of visual storytelling um, and also see potential connection between disparate visuals in terms of tapestry filmmaking, which is the kind of filmmaking, like I said earlier, I enjoy mm-hmm. to do, and I enjoy to consume. You have to see ways that things will be woven together, often and probably agonizingly for, for producers <laughs> before other people see those connections. So you're definitely, there's a lot of trust me, we'll get there conversations during the workshopping phases of making a film like this. Yeah, I think that's, that's the biggest uh, overlap it's a combination of thinking visually in terms of storytelling and then the intellectual exercise of crystallizing somebody else's voice or somebody else's vision. There's a great segment in The Art of Making It that covers the truly independent Spring Break art fair that you curated in New York City. It's an inside track look that really only you could provide. Tell us about the importance of that inclusion and capturing the scenes while you were knee deep in both mounting the show and making the film. <laughs> I, <A love>. little. <laughs> I know there's a lot to tell, but. Another question. As I was knee deep. Well, I was actually, I think technically I had just, I sort of squeezed in that last show right before 
four. Gosh, I'd have to look at the timeline. Yeah. I'm trying to see if we were actually in production yet. I think we're just about to start production. And then my next show, it, you know, I kind of took a year off making the film. And then my next, my, then my next exhibition at spring break was right after we uh, locked picture and before we had our world premiere. So I sort of bookended Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> with spring break art shows. What they've created is, is so magic and special. And I just wanted to, you know, having experienced it, like I said, I wanted to kind of convey that. And so our approach Again, it was a lot of collaboration with the DP. Yep. The composer brought a wonderful treatment. We actually licensed a song specifically um, for this uh, segment of the film as well. Was it the cover at the beginning? It was it the the... Uh, the the La Tigre. The editor found that music for it and kind of cut it with that kind of energy. But in terms of how to cover something that is so huge in scope, what I asked them was, and it, you know, and it was actually a, a lot of shoot days in terms of the shooting budget. I think we had four to cover the art fair. So we needed a day of, you know, a day of setup, a, a couple, a day of the earliest kind of load in where nothing has been done, mm -hmm. a day where things are kind of farther along so you can see the progress being made, the frenzy to finish, because it takes, you know, several days to get all this kind of put together, right. and then the payoff where the audiences kind of flood in and everyone gets to experience this sort of um, the right. magic. And then I think we even cheated some shots as like deinstallation. <laughs> <laughs> the striking of the set. Yeah, I saw. <laughs> and it, uh, the, to get what you finally see in the film, it was a little bit crazy because we had a skeleton crew. You have to, it's a documentary, there's a budget. But we were doing things like one of the producers and he deserves a shout out right here for this, um, Andrew Mayer. I took him and our sound recordist and just said, he, he loves art. He was there on set because he kind of wanted to be around it. And I said, okay. And he was telling, he'd come to me excited. He'd kind of gone down hallways and seen booths we hadn't gotten to and said, oh, this, this person's here, this, this artist or this gallery from this other part of the world is doing something. And I just said, you take the sound guy and you go and do these, you know, here are some questions, add your own and just do these rapid fire audio only interviews with as many people as you can find that you think are interesting. And we just sent them on their way. But this is while we were doing those long kind of um, floating gimbal shots mm -hmm. down the corridor. Um, and you remember those from the film. And we kind of knew that was the first moment you would feel the magnitude of, of their undertaking. But it took a lot of coordination to get those shots right. So we well, I sort just of to clear the frame to get that, that smooth exactly. shot in, like that's a miracle in itself, you know, with people bopping around and we used it and so in that the audio bed is where we're um, in that scene when you're getting all these kind of quick and with sebastian you know the direction was things like just get as many different shots of people you know taping hand hammering painting measuring uh, you know different people different contexts different booths you know different angles it's just variety so you know and he nailed it the editor nailed it with a pacing but it was really fun as we put that scene together to hear some of what andrew and joe our sound recordist went and got and he came back and just looked like a little kid who was so excited because they got <laughs> just hours of artists talking excitedly about their work and their shows and the fair and in that that moment is in the as you hear the sort of chorus of voices from all over the world talking about how special this is what amber and andrew have created there right. um that was, uh, i wasn't even there for it when it happened so <laughs> well, you, a perfect example of trusting your team there's a great documentary that you produced entitled wonder women the untold story of american superheroines directed by Christy Guevara Flanagan, which featured many of the creative elements, the use of animated sequences, choruses, varied perspectives, cinema verite, later found in the art of making it. 
I suppose working on that as a producer helped advance the use of many of these elements as a director later. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Gosh, let's see. Uh, I mean, I definitely learned a lot working with Christy Guevara Flanagan, that director. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's extraordinary ta- extraordinarily talented and actually just made a film that was at um, Tribeca that is just, you know, getting rave reviews called Body Parts. And she's a professor at um, UCLA in the film department there. You know, we met, we were introduced by a, a former professor of mine at Stanford, Jamie Meltzer, who is actually, I would add to the list of filmmakers whose work I admire and who have influenced me creatively. He's made great films um, off the charts. He uh, he paired us and she came to the, she came to my thesis film screening where I felt she saw the film that I was talking about, Imitating Life, the one about the history of camouflage. And I think she saw some parallels in the way she's interested in storytelling and what I was doing. And so we, our approach, I think the interesting thing with that film was figuring out how to tell a story that covered 70 years of a comic book character's history in 90 minutes. That's really tough. (laughs) And that character's influence. So moving out of the realm of comics into television, into popular culture, and into, you know, all aspects of the hero genre. There are a lot of parallels with the art of making it in terms of scope. It's ambitious. We pulled in the many different expert voices uh, for this film, as well as that film, Um, people from different disciplines, the talking head montages, which, you know, I was, I mentioned Errol Morris earlier, but, you know, specifically he made a film called Fast, Cheap and Out of Control. Great movie. I've seen that. Uh, The idea of having these, I I just feel like there's a, a right way and a wrong way to do talking head interviews and documentary. I think it has to have kind of humor and pathos as well as it's almost like you have to undermine the authority of the talking head, even as you're having the conversation right. with it. So it was, you know, it was a playful kind of employment of those types of conversations in our film. So it influenced me there. And then I think once you've worked with animators in the context of making a documentary film, it's hard to move away from it entirely. It's such a- Because they can do anything. They can do anything. It's such a rich layer. And you know, it's sometimes I, some uh, reviewers have talked about the, the primer aspect of the film, mm-hmm. how it says, you know, it gives, gives this sort of breakdown of the art world. I knew that we were going to need that kind of grounding for lay people. It is such a confusing, deliberately opaque and amorphous space. You know, the art world of the capital A-W. Like, what does that even mean? Mm-hmm. So we had to really um, visually present these moving parts and their relationships with one another to keep the audience from kind of getting lost in the ecosystem that we're uh, exploring in the film. So that was a fun creative challenge. I think it pays off in the end. I'm really proud of the work that Colton Fordyce, who we were so fortunate to get our animator, he was just fresh off of Tiger King. Wow. Um, But also very early in his career, was not the lead animator on that. He was part of a team. He's uh, another filmmaker I greatly admire, Chris Smith. He's sort of like Chris Smith's uh, secret weapon young, fiercely talented, had never done a, a feature like this before. Yeah. So um, it was really a pleasure. Good opportunity. Now he's off into the world, probably yeah. directing his own features. <laughs> Same with our DP, actually. I, yeah. I'd worked with Sebastian Lasauza Rogers on a number of um, commercial projects, and he was incredibly talented, Has had done some great short films, but hadn't done a feature before. In fact, I had to convince the producing team. <laughs> I said, it's funny when you do that, because you have to act as this interpreter. You almost have to be clairvoyant or present yourself as such to say, this person is ripe at this moment. Guess what they're doing next? 
I can't tell you, but it'll be this big when we can't afford them or, you know, wrench them from their schedule. It's like, <laughs> I've had to do that. He's harder, he's harder to think now now. Yeah, yeah, it's really tough. <laughs> On that project, I have to ask this because our audience will want to know, what was it like meeting such cool cultural heroes like Linda Carter, who's the original TV Wonder Woman, Lindsay Wagner, the bionic woman, and of course, the famous women's rights activist and journalist Gloria Steinem, also a writer like you who fights the good fight. What, what was it like just being in the room with those people? They're amazing. Or were you too busy managing your camera operator <laughs> to get excited? <laughs> Wonder Woman was interesting. We didn't have a ton of resources. So we were often, if you look at the behind the scenes pictures, <laughs> you know, I was the producer, but I was often you know, holding a boom pole, you know, like just yeah, doing yeah. double duty. I'm, sometimes I'm filming, but Christy and I wore a lot of different hats on that shoot. So for the Linda Carter, that was humbling. I would use the word humbling. She's it's so, gotta be. I mean, come on. <laughs> so stunning and classy. I mean, the joke is, you know, and I was, you know, that was, that was a minute ago. So I was <clears throat> younger than right. in my you know early thirties and there's a picture of, of the three of us. And yeah, I was in my early thirties. I think she was in her kind of late sixties and, yeah. you know, just kind of standing between the director and I, and I just told Christy afterwards, I was like, I can't even post the picture because I look like a dog. I, and I, I, that was as Every, nice, everyone I, does. I know. <laughs> There's no one who won't. So don't feel bad. I know. It was like, God, she's just so painfully, stunningly gorgeous. But this is going to sound cheesy, but it's really, she's one of those, like it shines from within people. Oh so. yeah. I mean, and the producers on that show noticed that even though that was sort of a, you know, workaday world, like superhero eight o'clock kids gather around the TV and eat popcorn kind of show. Like the producers of that show knew that, you know, she had so classy and yeah. so comfortable and she made us all comfortable. She could probably feel my nerves. I mean, can you imagine that was my right out of grad school first feature to produce and here I am in her living room. That's her superhero power. is, and I, and I think that's true because you've met a lot of really, I mean, you're certainly an incredibly bright person and it takes one to know one and you've met some incredible minds and those great people, the few that I've had a chance to work with or meet, that's part of their job is to set that tone, is to create that level of release and acceptance and understanding and it permeates the room. But it's the greats like her that just sort of like make you go, ah. I can breathe. Was that true with Lindsay Wagner or Gloria Steinem? <laughs> They're both also really amazing, you know, really yeah, yeah. fantastic people. So unfortunately, we didn't have the budget for me to fly to LA for the Lindsay Wagner. So I did not get to be on, on set when, she, when the director interviewed her, yeah. sadly. But with the Gloria Steinem... Come that. on, you got to tell us. <laughs> Come on, we got to know. This, this part's going into the advertisement, Kelsey. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, first of all, she's uh, just a goddess. I mean, a, a yeah. legend and a, yeah. a personal hero. And it was a huge moment to be again in her space. It, I, I couldn't believe we got there. And it was such a wild, typical kind of industry way. Somebody, we had gone to IFP week with the film. We met somebody from Chicken and Egg Pictures who knew her, who presented our project. And she agreed to talk to us. And it just felt like uh, just such an exciting kind of moment. I was, you know, you're working hard when you make these films. I mean, it really, again, like, you know, filmmakers are artists too, and it's labor. Christy and I had full-time jobs the whole, pretty much the whole time we were making yeah. this film. 
So I, I, this is, you know, I, I could kind of do it more easily than in a funny way. I was, again, I was in my third, early thirties. I hadn't had children yet. And so burning the midnight oil was just something you did. Sure. Abounding um, energy, surplus of hormones that changes. Yeah. <laughs> that said, my prevailing memory of, of the, the interview with her is we were in her room by the time the DP had, we had kind of lit every, you know, lit everything and set up the shot a certain way. And we had the, you know, the director, you know, set up the eyeline. And I was kind of off to the side, a little bit in a dark corner with a clipboard. And I was kind of there to sort of keep track of questions that were asked and make notes of if something was missed, like a talking point we wanted to hit. All I remember is that the lights get really warm and it yeah. was really dark. And I started like nodding off. I was kind of <laughs> And then I remember the director looking at me, making this face like, what is wrong with you? Because I was like, Gloria <laughs> Steinem, pay attention. <laughs> myself, I know, pitching myself to stay awake. And that is nothing, this is not, that is nothing about what she was saying. Because she's no, like, no, of course. To her forever. I just was really probably realistically just under arrested and exhausted. And, and uh, I, I wonder if that was another moment of setting you at ease in the room too. It's Gloria Steinem. <laughs> Gloria Steinem's got the power. You don't have to do anything now. Just sit back. It'll be captured um, on media forever, and you can deal with it later in the editing room. I think. She never, was, I hope she never listens to this. It's so embarrassing. <laughs> start getting think, drowsy during her interview. I think but. she'd laugh. Let's go back to the art of making it. It's a remarkable, revealing, and ultimately interesting film for me. Not just personally because I'm an exhibiting artist and also work in the motion picture business. I think it'll be interesting to an uninitiated audience member because it is an underdog story and includes many varied perspectives from high-profile megabuck American commercial art dealers to award-winning journalists like Jerry Saltz, but also sharp critics of the convoluted and shrouded art world like Hilde Van Helfenstein, also known as Jerry Gagosian, and the unorthodox late art critic Dave Hickey, who was always deeply suspect of any object, people, or activity outside of the actual artwork and artists in the art world. Of course, the film features a good number of great seasoned top-tier artists like Charles Gaines, but also struggling and rising stars like Jenna Gribben, Chris Watts, and Gisela McDaniel. How did you go about choosing these subjects when there are so many varied art world denizens, especially at its epicenter in New York City? So, you know, casting is such an interesting process. It's, <clears throat> if you imagine what casting a narrative film is like, I, I, I sort of feel like documentary casting for a film like this isn't that different in a way. It's lots of research, it's lots, lot, lots of, you know, your research is the auditioning process. You're looking for a variety of perspectives in terms of what we call the chorus, you know? So when we were looking for voices that could speak to academia or um, the commercial gallery landscape or institutional curatorial, you know, journalistic perspectives, you know? So we're looking for voices. And there are some instances where you, Somebody has a great suggestion. Oh, I have a contact here. They'd be happy to talk to you. You find, you know, you go online, you find interviews with them and they're just, it's like reading a phone book and you just think this is not going <laughs> to work. You need, you need dynamic, you need fresh, but then you also, you need range. So we were making sure we had a lot of diversity. I mean, I've spoken about this before, but I think, you know, part of responsible storytelling, a film is a platform and we're talking about a, an ecosystem that already has a lot of um, barriers to entry and, and inequities. And so diversity was a very important to me in terms of voices. 
we were uh, very fortunate to have a consulting producer who worked with us, Jenny Monet, mm -hmm. that um, introduced us. She's a, a Pueblo journalist and was living in Santa Fe at the time. And she introduced us to the women at, at the um, at IAIA, uh, the Institute for American Indian Arts, a curator and archivist who um, you meet in the film and who spoke in depth and at length about contemporary indigenous artwork. You know, that kind of access and that kind of trust really comes from um, personal relationships and research, you know, and ultimately kind of elevates the entire project. Yeah. And then some of it is just a vibe. Right. I mean, when it comes to the, the artists themselves, you know, I went to um, a few different MFA fairs, talked to, it, you also have a timeline, you know, when you're starting, you kind of need to find your people quickly. So I was really casting around for those just out of school artists and talked to dozens of artists, uh, Columbia and Hunter, and, right. you know, ended up of, of the people I spoke to, Jenna Gribben just really stood out. She had a kind of magnetism and excitement, a vulnerability. She, she, I always see she kind of carried her energy in her skin. And, uh, and same thing, Chris, I, I could just feel it with them. Um, yeah. So it's a real mix of things, part kind of cerebral and intellectual, part emotional and collaboration. Like the, you know, my producing team has incredible reach, incredible access. I don't have any contacts in, in Los Angeles, but our, my uh, producer or our producer, Debbie Wish, who produced The Price of Everything and is very mm -hmm. involved in the art world, had contacts. Um, she was connected to Helen Molesworth mm -hmm. and Andrea and Pasternak at a Brooklyn Art Museum. So those came through the producer and her network. And then, you know, Allison, who she pulled on as a co-producer, connected us with the LA people. Somebody like uh, Michael Govan at Alakma is not going to just pick up the phone and say, yeah, sure. Right. Yeah, <laughs> just anybody. So she happens to be a board member there, made right. sure he had time for us. A lot of that comes from having great producers and yeah. dedicated to the project. Well, congratulations. The Art of Making It premieres at the IFC Center in Greenwich Village, Manhattan, previously known as the Waverly Art House when I used to go to it back in the day, later tonight, and we'll screen again tomorrow night. It'll be followed by a Q&A session with you, the producers, and some of the featured subjects. I'm sure there will be a sellout crowd in attendance, too. What do you hope they will walk away with after having seen the movie and engaging with you and the film team? I really wanted this film to be a conversation starter. That's sort of the point of making a film that's not a single issue film. There's not a clear kind of call to action. You know, if you care about melting glaciers, go to this website and donate. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, it, this is really, it's showing you that this is, these are complex issues. And the most important takeaway I think for audiences is to be reminded of the fact that, um, that art matters, that the well-being of artists matter we should care whether or not they're getting the support they need and whether or not the system that's in place to lift up certain voices is functioning equitably and uh, responsibly. This is our cultural legacy. These are the stories of our time. And my hope is that people will simply care more, engage more, ask tougher questions, demand more accountability and support living artists. Yeah. And, and as you said yourself, I, I'm hoping that this is a film that can speak to people all over the country. We really crossed the country to make sure we were not making a, a regional film. So right. you know, totally focused on the New York scene, for example. Hopefully people will be inspired to educate themselves about who in their communities are trying to do this work, whether it's a, an artist-driven alternative art space or working artists or you know an arts education program. Mm -hmm. people, people make decisions that can uh, even down to kind of how they vote and where they allocate taxes and yep. Things that can uh, make it all more sustainable. Baby steps.
in a yeah. word, engagement is what I'm hoping for. Yeah, opening a dialogue. So I have to ask, what's up next? What motion picture and curatorial projects are you working on now and in the immediate future? Sure. Okay. Um, what's happening? Both, well, I mean, both curatorially and as a, <laughs> as a documentary filmmaker, or maybe something else that I didn't didn't think of. I mean, I'll always come back to art writing and art curation. I I love it. I actually shortly before I I started the gallery, I was just starting to get involved with some fiction writing. Love short stories published in 2018, and uh, one of those, The Survivor, which was published by Story South, I'm uh, interested in turning into a pilot for an episodic. Excellent. So, I love it. Oh, actually, this is exciting. I have just started working with Artist Rights Society. They hired me to direct a short piece on Frank Stella. What? Um, yeah. So I got to go awesome. up and interview him at his studio and create a little kind of quick profile. Um, I don't know how much I can tell about the project they're embarking on with him and others at this time. So I'll just say that there's, they were going, it was going to be released this early this summer, and I think it's been pushed to the fall. But um, Artist Rights Society is doing some really interesting work right now. ARSNL is the organization. It's kind of like arsenal without uh, vowels, but um, stay tuned for more from them. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, I'm just trying to kind of show up and support the art of making it where and when it's having uh, screenings. Uh, after this run at IFC, we actually next week are going to be screening in my uh, nearby hometown of West Hampton at the West Hampton Beach Performing Arts Center. Uh, July 5th and 6th, and then later in July in Montauk at Offshore Art and Film Festival, which interestingly, I believe the plan is to have the screening at The Ranch, mm -hmm. uh, where they have a show up of Frank Stella's artwork. So it'll kind of come full circle. In fact, I had just found out about that when I was there filming with him. So I got to tell him, hey, I'm going to see you again in Montauk. How often does that happen? That's so cool. Thank you, Kelsey, for joining us today to talk a little bit about your work and the art of making it feature motion picture documentary film that's going in theaters today. If you'd like to learn more about the art of making it, go to theartofmakingitfilm.com. If you'd like to learn a little bit more about me, your guest host, Stephen Wozniak, go to s-t-e-p-h-e-n-w-o-z-n-i-a-k-a-r-t.com. And of course, to go to the White Hot Magazine of Contemporary Art, go to whitehotmagazine.com. And thanks for joining us on Art World, the White Hot Magazine of Contemporary Art podcast.